Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Bernadette Brennan to Books, Books, Books to discuss her magnificent new literary biography, Leaping into Waterfalls, The Enigmatic Gillian Mears, published earlier this year by Alan and Unwin. Dr. Bernadette Brennan is a literary critic, academic and researcher in contemporary Australian writing. She was for many years a senior lecturer in the English department at the University of Sydney, and she's a former president of the Association for the Study of Australian Literature. Her most recent book was the award-winning and critically acclaimed A Writing Life, Helen Garner and Her Work, which was published in 2017. Bernadette has published widely on various aspects of Australian literature, and she's currently one of the five judges for the Miles Franklin Award. Celebrated Australian writer Drusilla Majeska was a friend of Gillian Mears. She taught her creative writing in the early days at what was then the University of Technology and then edited one of her books and became a friend. In a review of Leaping Into Waterfalls, Bernadette's book, Drusilla has said this, With Leaping Into Waterfalls, Bernadette Brennan is confirmed as one of our finest biographers to be celebrated not only for this vivid portrayal of a writing life, but for her facility with the art of biography in this complex contemporary present. Bernadette, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you for having me, Nicole. It's lovely to be here. Now, I thought I would just start, but I feel like I should do a little short biography of Gillian as well before we started, although, of course, I'll be asking you about her. So just listeners, for those of you not familiar with her her life or her work, just a few bits of information. She was born in 1964. She died in 2016 at the age of 51. She wrote three prize-winning novels, over 200 short stories and a whole realm of poetry and journalism. And extraordinarily, as well as winning various fellowships and other awards, she won almost all of the major Australian literary prizes, the Prime Minister's Literary Award, the ALS Gold Medal, the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, the Vogel, and many others. Bernadette, to you now. Your last book was the literary biography of Helen Garner, published in 2017 to enormous critical and popular acclaim. Did you know once you'd finished that book that you wanted to write another similar literary biography? Oh, I did. When I finished that Garner book, I had thought I was just doing it for historical reasons, to have a book about uh, that drew together the 40 years of Garner's writing and her life. But once I finished, I was addicted. I just had to do it one more time. And the thought of finding uh, an Australian writer, preferably a female writer, uh, with an archive that I could bury myself into and then analyse that life through the archive and whatever I found there and as well as analysing the writing, it was just too tempting not to try it one more time. But I actually was a bit stuck because I wasn't sure who would interest me enough and 
I did remember reading Gillian's essay, Alive in Anton B, in which she tells the story of having MS, having just survived heart surgery, and hopping into a converted ambulance and taking off into the bush. And it was an extraordinary essay. And I thought, hmm, very interesting person. And I remembered reading some of her novels and thinking that they were very good. So I went back to read her work again. And when I realised how good it was, I knew I'd found my subject. You told me something um, lovely before about finding out that your late mother owned most of Gillian Mears's books. Do you like to just tell us about that? Well, yes, I was fairly fascinated to find all of Gillian's books on my mother's bookshelves. My mother was a, a doctor, but she was a great reader and she was a great reader of Australian literature. But she was, I thought, a fairly conservative person. She was a Catholic. She was married for 63 years. She had seven children. Um, my father was a lawyer, is a lawyer, and she obviously had this um, rich inner life of reading. And we used to talk about books a bit, uh, but by the time I discovered she had these books of Gillian's, she had fairly advanced dementia and she died shortly after. So I never got the chance to tell her that that's what I was working on. But I'm fascinated now that I've come to know Gillian's work so well, to know that my mother was buying these books as they were published and reading them and then buying Gillian's next book and next book. Mm -hmm. So it's just an interesting conversation I wish I'd been able to have. Bernadette, one of the reasons you wrote this biography was that you say that Gillian was one of the most important Australian female writers of the last 40 years. Yet, for some reason, her work is not as widely known as it deserves to be. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about Gillian. Who was she and why is she so important? So Gillian Mears, yes, as you say, is born in 1964. She lives a very quiet kind of country life uh, as she's growing up. She begins to publish when she's 20. And from the very first moment, the first story she sends out is hailed by a number of publishers. Bruce Pascoe eventually publishes it but says to her on the strength of one story, I guess I'm begging you, Gillian, if you have any other stories, could we have them and we'll publish a collection? So she's 20 years old at this point. She's a university student just finishing at the UTS creative writing um, degree that she's doing. She is an extremely retiring, shy person. She has a strong core of self-confidence at the same time as she's terrified of speaking in public or meeting other people. So she doesn't put herself forward. So her works get the awards. She wins the uh, grants from the Australia Council. So the literary community know who she is and the literary community are reading her books and they're awarding her books. But she herself refused to do publicity until very late in her life. And she used to, for instance, when she signed the contract for The Grass Sister, which was published in 1995, at the end of that um, publisher's contract, she struck out the clause about publicity. She mm. just couldn't publicise herself or her books. She couldn't bear to talk in public or even on the radio or to a journalist. So until, does that mean it wasn't until later in life, you give a couple of examples late in her life of her talking about um, her later work, in particular Falsbread. Does that mean she didn't do writers' festivals either? She didn't. And uh, she used to keep the Writers' Festival's programs from everywhere and they're all in the archive and she would highlight all her friends and colleagues who were at those Writers' Festivals, but she wouldn't go. She was invited to them all the time. She was invited to do international residencies, writing residencies in Australia. She said no to all of them. 
uh, until uh, Gemma Birrell was the uh, director of the Sydney Rise Festival in 2013. And the letter in there, it sort of gives me goosebumps even as I'm talking about it, the letter in the archive, almost begging Gillian, you know, please would you come and talk uh, with Bruce Pascoe about Foles Bread? And by that stage, Gillian's ready to talk and she actually thinks that she's probably going to die soon and she has things she wants to say. Foles Bread has been a huge success by then. It's just won a swag of prizes and yes. Bruce Pascoe is a very old friend who she's, as you've mentioned, worked with from the early days. That's right. So it was a beautiful discussion and you can actually still find it online. You can't see the visuals but you can hear it. Uh, where Bruce draws some serious belly laughs out of Gillian. Um, but so she went into a packed theatre, the Sydney Theatre down there when they could fit, uh, I think it was 400 plus uh, audience. She had a standing ovation at the end. Of course, in her usual way, she came away from there and thought, I failed. I didn't do the right thing. I didn't say the right thing. There's um, notes in the archive of people that wrote, people like Patty Miller, for instance, who wrote to Bruce Pascoe later on, and Bruce has passed it on to Gillian, talking about the magic of having been in that audience and hearing her speak and being taken along with her spirit and the ideas that she had. But uh, from that point on, Gillian was all for the publicity. She, she and, couldn't get enough of it. And she was in a wheelchair, wasn't she, for that? that she was in I was going to say performance, but for that yeah. conversation. Well, it was a performance. It was always a performance. And, in fact, she had hoped that they were going to film it as well and she'd got a friend to do some makeup that morning. Now, she was not a makeup girl. Mm. Um, and there's a letter in there which she's written to Gemma afterwards saying, oh, I'm a bit disappointed that you didn't film this because, you know, I really wanted to be filmed. And it was such a contrast to the girl that had spent her life refusing to see or talk to anyone, blushing, constantly blushing if she ever had to speak to anyone. Bernadette, you've referred a few times to the archive. I want to ask you about that. She kept voluminous records of her life, didn't she? I, I was staggered to hear you mentioned early in the book that when you went to the State Library to access her archives, there were 154 boxes, 27 metres. What sort of material was in those boxes? A vast array. The most useful material were the diaries. So Gillian was a great diarist and she kept a diary every day of her life. And some days she would write 30 pages, some days only 10 or 12. But for some years, she would keep three diaries simultaneously. One might be about what's going on with her body. One might be what's happening in her life. The other might be about food or also overlapping what's happening in her life. So there was an enormous amount of material that was her first person um, consciousness writing in this diary, uh, all the while hoping that and knowing that someone would come along and read it. So that's something I'll talk about maybe a bit later, her address to the biographer. There were thousands and thousands of letters. She was an enormous letter writer. And, for instance, when she was on holidays with her then-husband, you know, she was in her early 20s and they went to London, they would say it was a good day when they got 56 letters. 56 letters, and and it's just extraordinary. So there was letters, there was diaries, there was text messages. There Can was I just ask for a moment? So she's kept the letters to her. What about letters from her? Did she keep copies of those? Only some. Now, that's a really interesting story. She, she 
kept select ones that she had written. So there's quite a few of hers that she wrote to Gerald Manane, for instance. Mm. There's some of hers that she wrote to Helen Garner. Mm. There's some of hers that she's written just to friends, you know, old school friends or friends that she's made. But uh, she hasn't kept the ones that she sent to Elizabeth Jolly, for instance, but fortunately the Elizabeth Jolly archive of her letters is there in the State Library in New South Wales, so I could read those in that archive. And Elizabeth Jolly was also a meticulous um, archivist. You know, uh, she she made the archive. Well, archivists will say that writers don't make archives, that archivists do, but she, she made the collection that went into her archive. And you said something lovely about her, Bernadette, you said about Dillian. You said that letters were for her a form of flirtation. And mm-hmm. it was in this way that she... Um, really ignited a number of important literary friendships, wasn't mm. it, with her letter writing, one of them with Gerald Manane, as you mentioned, another with Helen Garner, another with Elizabeth Jolly, who didn't respond quite as warmly perhaps as the others. But it was a very important way for her to make her presence felt in the Australian literary community. Yes, um, make her presence felt. And ingratiate is the word for some of them. And certainly she was quite strategic in the letters that she wrote and when she wrote them and how she crafted them. Um, and it, it it worked because here she was, this extraordinarily shy person who's basically withdrawn as much as she can from society, in inverted commas, if you like. Um, for a lot of the time she's living in a van or she's living in a tent or she's, she's existing outside of Grafton, but she's writing to Randolph Stowe, Gerald Manane, Elizabeth Jolly, Helen Garner, and she makes friends with these people. She actually makes deep friendships with them over the years. And writing was the easy way, well, easy, I say, um, maybe that's also in inverted commas, for her to communicate without getting tongue-tied. She was always so worried about getting tongue-tied. So she would often draft a letter. She would draft letters to her sisters. You know, Was this even before she had the MS? Because I know one of the symptoms of the MS was ataxia and that affected her speech. You talked about she was worried about being tongue-tied. That was even before the MS. Oh, well, well before then. So, you know, as a kid at school, when she Mm. was achieving and, you know, coming first in the class and being very athletic, if she had to um, give a public speaking, uh, you know, event, she toyed with injuring herself so she wouldn't have to do it. The fear of speaking in public was so great. So letters were an absolute godsend and it allowed her to show off her beautiful skill of with language. So she would write these huge letters, 16, 18 hand page, you know, letters and send them off to people and it worked. They would send theirs back. And the other thing she loved about it, she used to talk about chewing over the letters. And so she would get the response and she would mull over it and chew over it for a few days or for a few weeks until the time was right and then she would respond. And sometimes when people wrote back to her too quickly, she was cross. They didn't spend enough time thinking about my letter. (laughs) Bernadette, with this wealth of material, how did you work out where to start? You had all these diaries. You had voluminous correspondence. You say you had school reports. You had all manner of documents. How did you know where to start? Well, I fortunately, I had enjoyed and learnt from my time in the Ghana archive. So I knew where the story, I knew where the, when, you, when you're reading this massive amount of material, the story leaps out at you. So you might spend eight hours reading early on, reading a diary, which was 
a, a pain-filled diary because she had just had her heart broken. And I would read hours and hours and hours of this, but there'd be a sentence or there'd be a line and you think, that's, that's part of the story. So my approach was simply take the archive as it comes, read everything, just start at the beginning, read your way through, take notes, highlight certain notes, this looks like a good story, and then get to the end and try and work out what you've got. Um, when you become immersed in an archive, you start to not live the life of that person, but you start to put the pieces together. And it happened with the Ghana one as well. I remember at the beginning thinking, what date was that? And when when did that happen? And oh, I'll never remember when that book was published. But within a short time, someone says, asks you a question and you can say whatever month that story was published or whatever year that mm. book was published because you start to just um, make the story in your own body, in your own mind, in a sense. You start to live this story. And so then when you sit down and you've got, as I did, 300,000 words thinking, oh, dear, I need to get some structure in this and where does the story go? But the story the story emerges and then you just need to cut and slash and edit. And oh. you, also, you also did extensive interviews with people who are still alive um, some 65 of them, I think. So I was wondering, how did you weave the interviews in with the written material that you had? Did you go through the archives first and then did you go and talk to people or did you do it sort of yes. in fits and starts along the way? I went through the archive first. I felt that I needed to be absolutely versed in Gillian's life. And then I went to her writing and I sat down with all of her published writing and I did my old-fashioned critical analysis of that, just for myself, just made notes. So I was basically like writing a, an analysis of Bowles Bread, for instance. What's interesting about this book? Where, where does it come out? Now, you're not going to bore the reader by putting all that in. They don't want to read some literary theory um, essay. But the key points in that book that then map onto key points in her life, you think that's really interesting. So once I had that firmly in my head, then I, I mean, all the way through, I was talking to her sisters and her father, so that was different. But for all, most of all the other ones, I waited until I was rock solid in what I knew, so I could then interview them well. And I think a number of people have said to me after I'd spoken to them that they were impressed at my knowledge and that my research, so that it was actually also showing a respect for the subject that I wasn't just some flighty, oh, tell me all about it. No, you'd but done your work. Yeah, but it also meant that I knew what questions to ask them and it worked really well. And then, of course, like all these projects, you go back into the archive three and four more times. You, you just need to check that last quote and you just need to see when exactly did that letter come. And But you get a feel for it. So um, that's what I did. You mentioned, and it's, and it's obvious in the book, that Gillian clearly had an eye to posterity. She says in some of her journals that she's imagining the future reader of these diaries. There's one, I thought, pretty funny reference. She imagines that the future reader of her archives will be a young woman with time on her hands, obviously, and a shy manner. Leaving aside how you feel about that description, how did it feel to come across notes in her diaries addressed to her future biographer like a, a voice from the grave, as it were? It was a shock to begin with, an absolute shock. And and also a delight in one way because I thought, wow, you cheeky, cheeky thing. You, you so are playing with me here, but I'm up for it. Let's, let's see what, what happens. Um, and then I got 
used to them and then I'd sort of miss them when they weren't there for a while and suddenly they'd come back again. So, scholar of the future, I really want you to pay attention to all these pages of darkness that I was thinking I wasn't going to pay attention to, I was going to just elide. I think this is really important for you to look at. So what that did was um, it pulled me up short, of course. It put me on my guard because I knew that Gillian was um, very interested in control and she was trying to control this. Crafting her own story. Crafting her own story. Mm. But also at the same time I respected that because I thought, why not? You're the writer and constantly us readers and critics misinterpret writers. Mm. You're trying to resist that misinterpretation Mm. of you, which is perfectly fine. I had uh, a couple of lines from Maria Chumakin's speech that she gave, her address that she gave, the Hazel Rolly address at Adelaide Writers' Week in 2018, in which she was talking about biography. And she said uh, the biographer must pay attention to the subject's voice and if you have access to that voice, it is it's a human right for the subject to be represented by their voice. So I just had to work out how much of Gillian's voice I would put in there and how much I would allow her to structure this narrative. But the way I dealt with it mostly, I think, was to point that out to the reader. So exactly as you quote there, I quote that Gillian says that, and that tells you something about Gillian. So that's, again, another feature of her personality and what she wanted to do. Um, But over time, I quite liked it. I had a bit of a laugh. Her sisters and I laughed about that, saying, oh, she'd probably be really pleased that it was you. And and then at the end, uh, one of her sisters, Karen, said, oh, yes, she would have loved that photo on the front, although she would have said her ears were too big. And and I said, well, she would have had to have found something that I did wrong. So (laughs) it was that kind of joke in the end because in a sense that Gillian and I somehow bonded even though she had already died. You met her once in real life. Tell us about that. So I met her in 2012 when I was the president of ASAL, as you mentioned in the introduction. Gillian had won the ALS gold medal for Foles Bread and as the president and the chair of the judging panel, it was incumbent on me to um, present her with the ALS gold medal and a certificate and a cheque. She was just packing up from Adelaide when we told her that she'd won and she that particular year, often the, the medal is given over at the annual conference, but that year our conference was at the University of Wellington. We'd gone for the first time offshore in honour of uh, Professor Lydia Weavers, who recently uh, died and she was an extraordinary academic uh, from New Zealand. So we were, there we were in, in New Zealand, but Gillian couldn't travel there. So she said, I'll make a video and you can play it. And so she did that. And then she wasn't happy with it, as always. She wasn't happy with that one. So she moved to Sydney and she made another video. So I played the video in Wellington. And then when I came back to Sydney, I'd said, well, how would you like me to present you with the medal? And so she said, oh, I'd like to have coffee. I'd like to meet you at a coffee shop. So we made an appointment and we met at the coffee shop. And so we sat there for about three and a half hours chatting. And she said, oh, by the way, I've looked you up and I'd like a copy of that book of essays you edited, <laughs> Ethical Investigations, Poetics in Australian Literature. And I'd like um, some of Noel Rose's poetry. Could you bring that too, please? And that was when you were an academic at the University of Sydney, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. yes. So I bought her a couple of books and she said, right, thank you. I'd like to read those. She was a great reader and an eclectic reader as well. Um, anyway, we had a couple of coffees and we had a muffin each and Fascinatingly, in the archive, she's taped in the gold medal 
and it's there on a piece of paper. And next to it, she's written, I wish I had my two friends caffeine and sugar with me when I received this. Now, that's fascinating because, firstly, I didn't know that she'd had an obsession with caffeine and sugar for 20 years and had been trying to fight this. And me, of course, who loves my coffee, it didn't occur to me that it was odd to say, well, shall we get another coffee and shall we have a muffin? But really interesting for a biographer was to find yourself in the archive. You see yourself there. You remember that day. And then there is a recording of it in her hand, which is different to how it was. So, you know, I didn't have caffeine and sugar. You think, well, actually you did. So it's a tiny, tiny thing. It doesn't make it into the book. I don't mention it in the book because it just didn't fit in the narrative. But I have spoken about it um, since then. And it's what's important, I think, is for someone working in an archive to just be aware the whole time that everybody has their own subjectivity and Mm -hmm. all have different memories. We all come at memories from different perspectives. And that was what was there. So someone else writing it might have said, well, that was how it was. You do mention that when you talk about using the diaries, you obviously do that judiciously, aware that there's the possibility that they might be unreliable. And you say something interesting I wanted to ask you about. You said, I do trust the diaries as diaries. Mm. What did you mean by that? Well, I was think I had to think about diaries a lot and I read a lot of theories about diary writing. If, if you write things in a diary, now everybody's different, of course, but I wonder how much a diarist pours the more difficult moments of their life into the diary, the sadder moments of their life. When they're really struggling with something, you write that down. But if you're out excited and happy and having a great time, do you come home and write that down? Do you, do you express that? So that's the most simple level. I thought diaries are records of emotions and events which by their very nature are ephemeral in a sense because the next day something's different. You feel differently. And Gillian would change her mind within five minutes. Within five minutes she thoroughly disliked her partner at the time, had had enough. She was finishing it. Five minutes later, she would say, forget everything I've written. I'm so in love. So diary as a diary is a record of these emotions, which in her case were highly fluctuating. Mm. But also diaries as diaries are um, are pouring out of the self that, well, may be crafted at a time that is very different when you're reading them 20 years later. So... um, you, can, you must put store in them because that's how the person was feeling at that time. But there, there's other uh, features, other emotions, other events that you need to feed into that time. So that kind of thing. So, yes, I trusted them as diaries, but they were not absolute fact. And the beauty was she would record so much in the diary and then she would also write about it to her friends and then she would uh, write about it in stories with very, very thinly veiled <laughs> um, fictive qualities, and then I would be able to interview people. So I, I got to be able to, in a sense, cross-check really essential moments. Um, but for the rest of it, I used them as a way of giving people an idea into how she was, how she felt, what she was like, which we don't normally have that kind of access to a subject. 
And I should say for listeners, when you read this book, something really wonderful about it, and I have to say I didn't pick it up till I was quite a way through, is that there's no footnotes as you read the text. But as you get to the end of the book, Bernadette has chapter by chapter, page by page, meticulously, former academic that she is, recorded her source. So for each page, whenever there's a quote from a diary, Bernadette will have referenced what the date was of that diary entry. And that in itself was really fascinating. Let's talk now a little bit about Gillian's childhood. Could you tell us a little bit about her childhood and what she was like as a child? Uh, Gillian's one of four sisters and they're all born within five years. So and she's the, number three, right? She's number three. So there's, there's uh, Yvonne, Karen, Gillian and Sonia. So uh, her parents have moved from, they've migrated from South Africa to Ganella Bar just outside of Lismore and they have this idyllic kind of lifestyle where they have these four little girls and they live in the country and they have a dairy farm over the back fence and they play sword fights with cow ribs and they have porridge on a big fallen tree in the morning and they are each other's soulmates. They are so enmeshed and so close and the family's happy and it's beautiful. And that goes on until they're about nine. But when she's little, this is, I thought, fascinating. So she didn't walk until she was nearly three. They have photos of Gillian as a bottom walker. So she got around everywhere on her bottom. Now, that's fascinating that she did that. But also she didn't talk. She didn't say a word. And her parents took her to a paediatrician who said, don't worry about it. She doesn't need to speak. Her two elder sisters intuit everything she needs. And that, I think, is really interesting because, in a way, that's how Gillian got through so much of her life, of being quiet, expecting people to intuit what she needed and observing, always observing from the sidelines. Sonia was the youngest and was the real extrovert. And there's stories of, you know, Sonia would just go off wandering into all the neighbours' houses and they'd have to ring a big bell to get her home. But Gillian would be at home sort of quivering next to her mother's ankle. She would never leave her mother's side. So um, she was a sweet kid, obviously, an intensely um, feeling kind of kid, a needy kid. She was fairly obsessed with her mother and terrified that her mother was going to leave her. Um, she felt safest at home close to her mother and then her mm. sisters were her friends. But she also writes about by the time she's a teenager feeling that she was distant from all of them and she was watching all of them and she was much more secretive than all of them. They move to Grafton when she's nine. The sisters, uh, Yvonne particularly, uh, wants to get a horse and she does and she needs a riding partner so she convinces Gillian to get on a horse. Gillian is in awe of Yvonne and would do anything, Yvonne said. So having got on a horse once, Peter is convinced that, okay, well, she can ride, so he buys her a horse, which is a bolter, and she jumps on this horse and off she goes, this thrill and excitement of wild horse riding and grows up through those years, 10 to 16 in Grafton, riding horses and swimming in the Clarence River and, you know, being quite a happy kid but also all the while saying she has a knot of anxiety in her belly because she feels like her childhood is going to end. So mm. she's always an anxious kid. Mm. That was really interesting that she she was so attached to her childhood that she feared it ending. I thought that was quite unusual to, yeah. for a child to think like that. For a child to think like that. So she's sort of preternaturally wise, if you like, and but also you could argue that she never really let go of that childhood. She was forever trying to be and stay 
as the child in all sorts of ways, um, needing that protection. Bernadette, I would like to ask you a bit about the relationship with her three sisters as they became older. She was the third of the four, as we say, and you've said that it's clear from her diaries that her sisters were critically important to her identity. In what way? Gillian herself spoke about there being almost no boundaries at the end of her body uh, with her sisters. They were all enmeshed. They were sort of one body, even though they were not obviously one body. There were also very few boundaries in terms of um, who they each desired, uh, what kind of writing they did, what they thought, what they felt. Um, they, Gillian always felt that it was her right to judge her sisters. As they got older, she would tell them off for their motherings, you know, what they decide to do with their, their mothering um, practices. Um, she was a very honest person, but she thought that she had the right to comment on everything that they chose to do with their life. And sometimes they did the same back at her. So they were, they were just very intense is mm. probably the word. Mm. Um, they, she adored them. And when she writes, so much of her writing is to do with her sisters. And there's a particular essay which was first published in Drusilla Majeska's book that she edited, Sisters. It's an extraordinary essay called in, uh, The Childhood Gland. And she writes about her sisters and being one of the four. She says, look, I've always wanted to write about my sisters and I keep trying to write about them in my fiction, but they don't ring true because there's only us, the real us. And then she says, take the letters, the first initial of my sister's name, spell them backwards and you have sky. And that actually sums up how she felt about them. They were her world. Mm. And they continued to be her world throughout her life, except at different times she felt the need to violently break from them. And we're going to talk in a minute about the autobiographical nature of her writing and the consequences that that had for family relationships. Just before we get to that, I'm not going to ask you uh, too much in this interview about her various romances and lovers, but I do want to start with the first serious one. Um, when she was 14, a man called Stephen Tatham arrived at Grafton High School where she was. Could you tell us a bit about him and her subsequent relationship with him? Yeah, so Stephen Tatham arrives at um, Grafton High School and teaches English and history and continued to teach English and history until recently when he retired. And he continues to be a much-loved and respected figure in the Grafton community. Gillian uh, has already been a little bit in love with her English teacher from the year before who has introduced her to Randolph Stowe, particularly the merry-go-round in the sea. And she is one of these teenagers who is enraptured by the teacher who can tell her things about literature and art or herself. So she's 13 and she's a little bit in love with the English teacher but doesn't act on anything. Then when she's 14, Stephen arrives and here is another teacher who's going to open her eyes to Carson McCullough's work, to Ecclesiastes, to Philip Larkin. So he's teaching her these books and, of course, she's the romantic and um, intense schoolgirl. So builds up in her head the idea by the time she gets to year 12 that she's in love with him. And she fills the diary with these sort of nauseating love poems and, oh, I'm so in love, I'm so in love. 
Uh, near the end of that year, they actually do start an intimate relationship and immediately she says, oh, my God, what have I got myself in for? This is not what I want and all this time I've felt that I loved him and I don't. He's very nice. And then suddenly she's saying, oh, he loves me. He loves me in this huge way and I feel terrible because this is not what I want. But curiously, and this is something that happened throughout so much of her life, she was fully aware that she should not marry him and that she needed to have other relationships and that she knew that she could not possibly be faithful to him and yet she went ahead and married him. At 21. At 21 or three weeks before she was 21, writing in her diary two nights before about how much she was crying about getting married, about her sexual fantasies of making love to other men, about this was going to be so boring that she wasn't going to be able to stick with him and says, and yet calmly I walk towards marriage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she did it throughout her life and it was only much later in her life, in about 2007, 2008, she recorded that she realised that for all of her life she had stepped willingly inside the cages set for her by lovers. It wasn't just men, it was the men and women that she had um, been in relationships with. And she said, because it's easier, someone else gets to look after the minutiae of life, you know, running the house, paying the bills, doing these things. But it's also easier just to have one person that is my person, and that actually allows me time to write. So really all she wanted to do was to have someone basically look after her and love her a bit and then she could go and write. So Mm -hmm. she marries Stephen and very quickly is looking around to have an affair because she's, she's young, she's unfulfilled, and he's very much in love with her and then she finds someone to have an affair with and she does, and so it begins. So that, I mean, that you the t- part of the title of your book is The Enigmatic, Gillian Mears. That's obviously a, a classic example of it. One of the things that she seemed to know all along from a young age was that she didn't want to lead an ordinary conventional life. She had an abiding fear of what she called lamb choptum. Can you tell us about that? What was that? I love that, that phrase. I think we should have it in our lexicon. We should all be using it. All of us. <laughs> so lamb choptum was the state of being that one went into when one became domestic. So to to live with one other person, um, she didn't specify whether that person was male or female, but to live with one other person was to be drawn down into the banality of domesticity. And she just wasn't interested. So she wanted the romance. She wanted the love. She wanted undying love, but she also wanted constant um, entertainment, energy, uncertainty. So lamb choptum had to be avoided at all costs because lamb choptum was so dull. So, but I just think the phrase is fantastic, lamb choptum. (laughs) Let's talk now about the autobiographical nature of her writing. You say early in the book, so porous were the boundaries between her life and fiction that during the course of your research, you were often confused about where you'd read something. Had you read it in a book? Had you read it in a story? Or was it in her diary? Was it in one of her letters? Her writing in her short stories, obviously her essays, but also her novels was highly autobiographical and that got her into trouble at times with friends and family members who understandably felt that they had been betrayed. There's many examples of this in the book. The one that I'd like you to talk about is the one that occurred um, in 1995 or shortly after 
when it emerged that Yvonne, the older sister, had had an affair or at least had slept with Sonia's husband. Gillian wrote about this in an essay called Southern Hemisphere Human, which was published in 1996. You make this point, the point that this is one of three essays she writes about sisters, the earlier one you've referred to, Childhood Gland. But let's just focus now on this one, Southern Hemisphere Human. How did that essay reflect on Yvonne? Oh, it was very cruel. Uh, she doesn't actually name Yvonne in that essay. She calls her the big sister. So throughout the essay, it's the big sister this and the big sister that. And she says at one point in the essay, you know, it makes it sound like I'm talking about some kind of pudding, but you all know who I mean. Um, she names Peter her father and she names Helen her lover at the time. So it's, it's, it's barely fictional. And when she was challenged about it, she says, all right, well, I'll call them factional essays then. Uh, again, this is another one of these contradictory moments. She does write the essay. She's invited to the family. There's a major fracture because she has just heard about uh, what's gone on between the sisters and, and Sonia's husband and Yvonne. So there's intense pain. There's this sense of betrayal and there's kind of chaos that's happening in her life and her, her family because of this. She's writing some fairly aggressive letters to Yvonne about this and Yvonne is sort of standing up for herself and saying, well, listen, there's things that were going on in my life which you don't understand and, you know, I, I need some understanding here. The next day she gets an invitation from Brenda Walker saying, I'm putting together an anthology of essays, stories titled Risks and I would really like you to write something. Now, the risk can be to do with the topic of your story or it can actually be the whole form of what you're writing. And, of course, for someone like Gillian who just thrives on risk, it couldn't have come at a better time for her. So she sits down and she was a very quick writer when she wrote. She would form things in her head and she would just write them freehand in a Spirex book with very little editing and they would be sent off and they'd be basically published like that. So she sits down and writes this essay in a fury, in a fury at Yvonne. And she's wanting to hurt Yvonne and she does. For a while after that, she publishes it, for a while after that she says, I wasn't trying to hurt you at all it was just my own kind of therapy so my writing is psychotherapy if you read it now you see how I'm trying constantly to understand my family and my place in my family which is true that's very true she was really upset and troubled and she was trying to understand it so she wrote the essay it's a very good essay it's a gripping essay and everyone this is a point about her, her writing you can read that essay and think what an extraordinary essay and it will, in different ways, relate to all sorts of things in one's own life. And you don't need to know anything about Gillian's life. You don't realise that it's actually about the intensity of what's going on right then with her sister. So, so how did the sisters and her father, Peter, react to this essay? Uh, Peter used to um, not read a whole lot of Gillian's work. And then when he did, he'd say, well, it's very good. And he was always open to whatever she wrote you're a writer and that's fair enough. And that's how he was also with me in this biography. No, I don't need to read it before publication and I trust you. And, and he's thanked me since for my very honest words. So it's Peter was always open to that. Um, two of Gillian's sisters thought it was a good essay and they liked it. And then Yvonne was um, understandably extremely hurt and quite angry. One of the things that I find really interesting is that 
you make clear that right from the beginning, so right from the beginning she writes, uh, everything she writes is highly autobiographical, and right from the beginning you make clear in the book, it's clear from her diary, from entries, things that she writes, that she's questioning herself about whether it is the right thing to do. She writes that, you know, of course, as a writer, I've got to expose my own feelings, my own lives, but is it really the right thing to do to expose the lives of others? She then, we see later on in the book, she knows that the writing has the power to wound those that she loves and to cause family division. And at one point, she compares writing to knitting. She says, if only writing could be so pure, if only I could say that my words had always caused happiness. My question then is this, why does she keep drawing so closely from life, knowing that in so doing, she's causing pain to those she loves? What are her justifications for doing that? I think early on she didn't have any particular justifications. She just said, I'm a writer and the role of the writer is to be as honest as possible. So I'm actually basically doing you all a favour. I'm putting it all out there and I'm just writing how I see it. And if you'd like to write your story, I'd be more than happy to read it from your perspective as well. In this particular instance, she, because you mentioned that essay, that was the essay after which she said, okay, I'm not, I'm going to try not to write about my family so closely again. And she didn't. So that's 1997 when it gets published for the second time in her collected stories. That's also the, the time when Paradise is a Place gets published. And that's a much more beautiful book about childhood and adolescence and sexuality. And it's it's beautiful. So it's Sandy Edwards's photographs and of um Ma Grounds's property and he and his daughter Marina, who she doesn't meet until 2007. It's a lovely twist when that happens. Um, but so 1997, she writes that book and it's a kind book. And she says, I finally have a book that I can send to my relatives. I finally have a book I can send to Elizabeth Jolly, which she does, because I'm not being cruel and I'm not exposing anyone's lives in this way. And she is at that point, sort of exploring quite a bit of Buddhism and she's thinking I need to be kinder and I need my work to nourish rather than to hurt. In the early years when she really just didn't give much thought to anybody else's opinions or feelings, she said after she wrote The Mint Lawn, which offered an excoriating uh, portrait of her husband, oh, yes, uh, I actually think my autobiographical writing is is very, very bitchy, but it's actually the best kind of writing that I do. And, I mean, in one is sense... Is she right about that? She is. It's, it's, it's full of power. And, and I had read it without knowing anything about her life. Lots of people have read it without knowing anything about her life, and they've responded to it as a novel that's spoken to them in all sorts of different ways. So it is real art that she actually publishes these books mm. which stand alone. You don't need to know anything about her mm -hmm. life. But for me, once you do know about her life and you go back and read them, they take on an added dimension, which mm. I think is actually a positive dimension. You think, wow, that's extraordinary. Mm. And I particularly mean the grass sister for that one. It's, it's extraordinary, um, the closeness to her life. It's, it's breathtaking. Let's talk now about her health. And again, I don't want to spend too much time talking about this. Readers will, will read the book. Sorry, listeners will read the book and, and will read about that. But suffice to say that in 1995, when she's 31, her health starts to deteriorate and she experiences a whole lot of very unpleasant, very severe symptoms. And basically, nobody knows 
what's causing them, what the reason is, until she's finally diagnosed in 2002, seven years later, with multiple sclerosis. Just tell us a little bit about the symptoms and how her health deteriorated. Right, so she's she's in her early 30s and she's building a house with her lover, Helen. Helen's a much more practical uh, person. Gillian's noticing that she's got a weakness. Uh, she can't keep up with a muscular weakness. She can't keep up with Helen in terms of digging trenches and but thinks, well, that's okay, I'm just getting a bit old. She then finds that her thighs can no longer grip her beloved horse, Bellini, uh, as well as they should. So she's having riding lessons at the age of 30, saying, you know, I've got to improve my grip, but she doesn't seem to be getting any better there either. Increasingly, she starts um, having large areas of numbness on her body and doesn't tell Helen at the time, but she records, you know, one time when they're making love, Gillian's crying and she's crying because she can't actually feel anything. But for the next, you know, seven, eight years, uh, you know, her her bladder function is not good, her bowel function is not good, her, her walking becomes more and more unsteady, her vision sometimes becomes very blurred. Now, all of these symptoms are very indicative of MS. In 1997, Yvonne says to her, Yvonne was trained as a nurse, and Yvonne sends her a whole mm-hmm. lot of information about MS, and Gillian's furious, absolutely furious to be sent this. Mm. Her grandfather had MS. Yes. So, so that was a fear she had from when she first started to experience these symptoms. She wondered if it was MS. I couldn't understand why it took seven years for the diagnosis. Yes. Um, she went to a few different GPs and one of them actually in 1997 said to her, you either have syphilis or MS. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to just say to a young woman and she walks out of the room and he says, well, you know, I'll get you an MRI. Uh, she then has all sorts of spurious diagnoses from neurosurgeons uh, about what's happening and it's all supposedly bone spurs in her neck and canal stenosis in her neck and these sorts of things so she she works out it's an easier way to believe them but think I'm not going to have the operation Uh, she sees a woman who has had the operation recommended to her who's in intense pain and thinks that's it I'm done with western medicine So on one sense, it makes sense that she says, okay, I'm going to bury all my scans and I'm going to go the natural healing path. And that's the moment she meets the man who was then called Jeff Scott and he's a macrobiotic um, expert and he's a shiatsu healer. So she goes to live with him and tries natural um, means by which to heal her body. And the upshot of that is that she ends up in hospital having heart surgery because she comes so close to dying, right? She was, yeah hours away from dying at the age of 38. But but the MS, it's an interesting one because she is finally diagnosed in 2002 and is very relieved to have the diagnosis but doesn't believe it's going to be forever, just says, okay, that's fine, I've got the diagnosis, but I won't have it forever, which is interesting because Betty Cuthbert was the same when she was diagnosed, I won't have it forever. But there's a moment in her diaries where years earlier, she has gone to see a neurosurgeon at St Vincent's Hospital and she's in the waiting room and she says, I really want some answers now to my symptoms of what's going on. And then there's four pages which have been sliced right down at the base of the spine of the diary and excised. It's the only time she's excised whole pages. She excised one little bit about Susan Hampton early on, but these are the four pages taken out and then it's got August 6th, home early. What year was this, Bernadette? This was, I need to get this right, this was... Pre-diagnosis? 
Yes, this is 1997. Mm. Mm. She then goes to India in 1998, January 1998, and, oh, sorry, she might have gone to India in 98 or 99. She writes a story about that, which was a long essay, and she later turned it into a fictive piece, and it was then published in Heat, and it was called... um, the monk of Sarnath or calm abiding and the monk of Sarnath in which a young woman has just seen a doctor who has told her that she has MS. And so she's very sad because her grandfather died of MS and she describes a man who died in the same way her grandfather did at the same age. And this woman has now gone to India and she's taken with her a book about MS and a book about other sorts of things. And in the story, she decides to mention the MS to the monk And there's a lot in this story about this young woman who's about her age, who matches all the sorts of bits of Dillian's life, who has MS. Now, that's 1998. Mm. So that's another four years before Mm -hmm. diagnosis. So at some level, Mm. did she know she repressed it? Did she, you know, um, did she just have a faith that she could beat it with other sorts of healing and you know, that's what she tried. As I say, we're not going to dwell too much on this, but again, as you uh, set out in your book, she basic, basically lived with the disease for 20, 21 years until she dies in 2016. And over that period, she endures really the most terrible suffering, physical, mental anguish, physical pain, physical suffering, until she died in 2016 at the age of 51. So that's a huge chunk of her life from basically 31 to 51. What impact do you think that pain and suffering had on her work? Oh, I think enormous. Um, so in 19, we keep going back to this 1997, she um, has her heart broken when Helen leaves her. Uh, she's trying to write a book at the time called Remnant and it's a, a novel and it's the only novel she never finishes and she blames the not finishing it on well really I could do paradise as a place because it's going to be much more healing and it's time I was nice and I was kind to people um but actually I think it was that it was just too big she was too ill at the time and um, to manage the size of this novel so she put it aside she she then does paradise as a place she's a bit sick of writing stories. She's saying, oh, look, it's a bit like colouring in. I can write a short story and I know it'll get published or win an award. She wants to do something different, but that's the moment when Jeff Scott arrives at the Environment Centre where she's working. So the new thing she does is she goes out to an entirely different lifestyle, living on the land and living this macrobiotic lifestyle, where she does get extremely sick, but she then writes a collection of stories which is quite different to everything else that she's written and they're very much to do with a deteriorating body or a body and a deteriorating romance as well. Um, so that's Map of the Gardens, which gets published. Now, she also, when she finishes that, she thinks I've got one great novel left in me, and that's Foles Bread. She, she does about a chapter of it before she is struck down with this endocarditis and cannot keep writing. That's the disease, the heart disease that nearly kills her. Yes. So she's rushed to hospital. She's flown to Sydney. She has open heart surgery. She has a mitral valve replacement. She has her vestibular system destroyed um, through gentamicin, which makes it even more difficult to move and to walk. 
she does go back to, to Grafton. She regains some of her strength and she reaches the age of 40 and she's thinking, right, now I'm going to take off in this ambulance. It's a great chapter of her life. She finally is going to stand on her own two feet and take off for freedom in this converted ambulance. And in one sense, it's crazy. It's it's a great chapter of, of what she does. Um, but it means that she's then in an ambulance driving, you know, converted ambulance driving around. So she can't manage writing a novel because she'd set herself up to write beside the, the road or under a beautiful tree and if it rained it'd come down and there's all those pages are in the archive as well the rain drenched ones that you can't read anything anymore and all so these sort of things can i stop you there does that mean yeah. she didn't write on a computer she wrote by hand she wrote by hand but she did have a computer that was powered by a little fold-out solar panel so she'd take that with her as well but also she was exhausted so when she was in the in the um ambulance she was trying to get away from writing stories trying to get away from writing letters she said I've got to get rid of my obsession with paper I've got to stop doing this but of course over the years the foals bread kept on percolating so all of this is coming back to your question about what did her illness you know do it was I think just too difficult to do everything with the energy that she needed to do everything um, it stopped her writing and publishing perhaps Falls Bread sooner than she did. Um, she did write The Children's Fable, which is something that she really wanted to um, succeed at. Um, her writing decreased markedly and she just wrote stories for petrol. She would write stories so she'd have enough to pay for petrol or something to eat. Um, but really, in another sense, she was enjoying living. And at that point, she was getting stronger and she looks fit and beautiful and she could walk with just a stick and she wasn't in pain. And then she falls in love with Mark Rounds, who's older than her father. He's 30-something years older than her. But they have a sensual relationship mm. in this beautiful landscape and she's alive. Mm. Um, so it's not all a bad story. Uh, she's, she's living. She's really living. And then she's thinking, I'm going to give up writing because I have been so cruel to people and I'm going to become a yoga teacher and that's going to save people because she was always wanting to make things better for everybody else and bring the energy of the universe to other people's lives so that was going to fix everything but of course that fell through as well so fortunately she did actually go back to false bread very fortunately which that was the one that won so many prizes was so acclaimed Bernadette just a couple of last questions your last subject was Helen Garner who's very much alive, this time Gillian obviously was not. And I was wondering, did that make your task as a biographer easier or more difficult? Yes. I'm. When I did the biography of Ghana, it was fantastic having her at the end of the text message or the email or across the table. Um, people used to say, I think quite heartlessly, you know, the best subject for a biography is a dead subject. I just thought, oh, that's a terrible, terrible thing to say. Um, and I loved um, the whole process of getting to know Ghana. And I did feel that with this one, that Gillian wasn't there. And there were so many moments I wanted to say, oh, Gillian, you know, why did you do this? Or this really wasn't that bad or something, you know, have a chat to her, which in the sense I sort of did in my head the whole time anyway. Um, I found it very moving that she was not here because she's 18 months younger than me and that really struck a chord and probably because I'd already met her. 
And because she was such a young and vibrant and sensual and open kind of person, to have her not here um, was quite poignant. Um, so I can't really compare them. They were both very different. This was a lot more difficult for two reasons. One was because she had a lot more dark, difficult material for me to work through. And the second was all the people that were involved were still alive and there is continuing issues and pain that had to be negotiated. So they don't really compare. Um, they, they were very different. Final question. With this biography of Gillian, you weave literary critique of her work through the story of her life as you did with Ghana. You referenced that earlier and said something like, oh, I didn't want to bore people with too much of that. I have to say that is one of the most delightful features of your biographical writing, the way that you do that um, seamlessly, I might say. And you have a quote at the beginning from David Maloof, who was a close friend of Gillian's, who said, often the gap between the social person and the writing is great. In Gillian, it was very close. And it made me wonder, how important is a knowledge of Gillian's life to a proper appreciation of her work? Well, I would say once you know about her life, you will appreciate her writing in a much deeper and fuller and more rounded way than you would have otherwise. But I would also say you don't need to know about her life to do that because the text speaks for itself and you should always be able to pick up a novel written by anybody and not know anything about their life and it should not diminish the work. So I, I was a bit anxious doing these kinds of um, projects because I think I do not want to diminish, and I say that in the second, the third quote I have is the epigraph from Susan Sontag, in my life I want to be known as something other than just my life and my work. In my work I want to be known as something other than Yes, life. that's the counterpoint, it, isn't it, to yeah. the melophon. Yeah, so it does give you a much greater understanding of her work and I think for me personally I appreciate her work far more by knowing about her life but I would also say you don't have to know about her life for her work but I'd also say this is a really interesting book for understanding a writer's life and I got a shock after I did the Ghana book. The number of writers who said to me, oh, I keep going back to your book on Ghana because it's about writing and it's mm. helping me as a writer. And I hadn't realised that. And people have said that about Ghana's diaries. You know, they've, mm. they've enjoyed going back to see about her insecurities about writing and they, mm. it teaches you other things. Um, this book, uh, I saw a comment by Mark Henshaw, the novelist, the other day saying, this is a, an incredibly important book for anyone to read, The Sleeping Into Waterfalls, anyone who's a writer. If you want to understand what being a writer is, what it does to those close to you, you know, the, the, the difficulties and the beauties of being a writer. So in one sense, the biography stands on its own away from her work, even though, of course, it doesn't. And everyone keeps telling me that they're going back to her work and that was one of my main intentions, so that she is not forgotten and that her work is appreciated. Well, and I think I started this conversation, perhaps it was, it was offline, but by saying that's exactly what I wanted to do as soon as I finished this book. I, I have read Foles Bread and I absolutely loved it. I'm ashamed to say I haven't read her other writing, but reading your book made me want to drop everything and immediately go back and read all of it. Congratulations, Bernadette. It's a magnificent book. And thank you so much for joining me today on Books, Books, Books. Thanks for having me, Nicole. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. 
If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.